Yeah, you know, now that you mention, I'm remembering that when I went to Rockford, Illinois for a wedding, I was wearing a mm -hmm. bow tie, and I had a pretty grandiose mustache at the time, and I got called some uh, homophobic slurs when we were walking around downtown Rockford. Um, so, yeah. I mean, Craig walking around Massachusetts gets homophobic slurs. That's Honestly, yeah, but I think, I think it is less acceptable than it used to be. I mean, I think it's more that, the, like, kids do it less and less now. Yeah. I think. That's yeah. my subjective impression. Like, it, it almost doesn't register for them, like, that's stupid, why? Um, and again, yeah. it could be because we're in, Yeah. like, that's fair. you know, I'm in Cambridge, so the friends I have that are sending their kids to preschool. Like, the preschools are basically like, let's talk about how problematic late-stage capitalism is, right? <laughs> so, um, so it's just different. Ah, that's so great. I mean, I'm just kidding. But the amount of people but honestly, I knew... like, it's... No, but seriously, I knew people... It's, it's more plausible here than it would be The, the eighth elsewhere. grade, the some of the eighth grade classrooms here teach um, bystander intervention. Yeah, that's sexual amazing. Perspective, which is amazing. Because I, I went into a couple of 8th grade classrooms with my old job and tried to build a partnership with our student groups to kind of do that sexual assault prevention education and modeling for 8th um, graders. And the 8th graders are like, yeah, we know. We know bystander intervention. You're like, That's amazing! Wow. Welcome to the EduPunks Podcast. This is your host, Craig Bideman, bringing you another conversation with an everyday educator and daily disruptor in the world of education and, and life and the world. I don't, I don't know. We, we like to talk to people who are changing the world, some unsung heroes, some people you might have never heard of, but are doing cool work in the world of education and everything adjacent to that world. This week, Katie Ham is actually your host, as you heard. In that first little opener, that, that, that teaser, this week, Katie Ham is interviewing our friend Chris Gilbert, who works at Harvard. He has done a bunch of different things on his way to being where he is today, working at Harvard, and even uh, was is a PhD student there, and has had a very non-traditional track to getting into the work that he does. And this episode is just basically one big history lesson about higher education and a lot of the world, which is just incredibly fascinating to listen to. And you get to hear uh, kind of an impromptu conversation because Katie and Chris were kind of, uh, they kind of arranged this conversation last second. I kind of was 
trying to get uh, some ideas for an episode this week, and uh, Katie was willing to chat uh, with Gilbert, which is awesome. Uh, they chatted in Katie's office at Leslie University, which is literally, literally across the street from Harvard. Some folks don't know that. So they see each other fairly often, and they talk about that as well. And they get into a lot of different stuff. They talk so much that we're even going to have an extra episode with a little bit more. Uh, This weekend, you'll get to hear the rest of their conversation, mostly around Title IX sexual assault prevention work. Uh, But Gilbert's also at the center of a very big change that's happening or proposed to happen at Harvard. And you'll get to hear a lot about that as well as his time kind of coming up in the Midwest as a punk there. So they have a nice Midwest bonding sessions as well. This week I'm bringing you tunes from my buddy Scott Nicholas, who performs as Craig Hola, a.k.a. Amish Rage. Uh, He has a brand new album out. It's called Uyulala. And I'll get to share some more of those tunes with you a little bit later. But it just dropped, and you're going to get to hear a bunch of that that album throughout this this episode. So yeah, uh, not a whole lot more to say. Not a whole lot to say, but I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Katie and Chris. It's very laid back. It's very relaxed uh, instead of just me yelling all the time. So you get a little bit of a break this week for me yelling in your ears and at someone else. So here you go. Let's get to the conversation with Katie and Chris. All right. So I'm sitting here with my pal Chris Gilbert. Hi, I'm sitting here with my pal, Katie Ham. Oh, that was nice. That was, see that? <laughs> um, so, I guess just to kick it off, uh, can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do? Uh, sure. So, I grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago and um, then went to college in the city itself. Uh, went to all the punk rock shows at the Fireside Bowl, which was a defunct bowling alley um, on a now gentrified side of town that was far less gentrified in the 1990s. And uh, me and my best friend at the time, Joe Zamorelli, would go to those concerts and uh, try to pretend like we weren't from the Burbs by buying the band shirt of the band we were going to see and putting it over the clothes we wore in which, of course, is the best way to identify somebody that came into the city for a show from the Burbs. And we were also petrified that my father, who selflessly drove us to these sorts of things, was going to, like, walk into the Fireside Bowl and grab us out of there if we were late. So it was good times. And, yeah, like I was saying when I walked in here, Pete Wentz uh, Wentz used to go to those shows. He was part of this crew of kids that we think were from Arlington Heights, which is, like, a northern suburb of Chicago. And they would just come in and tear stuff up and like pick fights in the pit and it was it was not pleasant and you could always tell because Pete Wentz like was a fashion punk so he wore at the time it was vest from the gap and I didn't like the gap because my mom was always trying to buy me jeans from there so that's kind of a little bit about me that really sums it up I guess that's the end of the podcast episode right sums it up I once went to shows with Pete Wentz end of story at the fireside bowl at the fireside bowl do they perform like among the the lanes or yeah, the, so the spot where the ball comes up? So, like it was totally defunct. So the lanes were kind of like roped off, and I don't know mm-hmm. if they like back in the day. I don't think that anyone had ever really used it by, back in the day. I mean, between ninety four and ninety nine. Um, then it probably in the 
mid 2000s, no, early 2000s, like 2005 or something like that. Uh, it closed down officially and reopened as a like family-friendly bowling place, which was distressing to all of us. I mean, like the drop ceiling, it was like that foam board drop ceiling. Mm-hmm. And it was like disintegrating and falling in on itself and roaches would run up the walls like in the oh, middle of shows. Gross. It was actually kind of rad. Yeah. In retrospect. Of course, that was your perspective. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I came from a Western. I didn't shows in Chicago until much later in my life. Where did you go? Um, I mean, I went to a ton of shows at the Metro, of course. Yeah. Oh, um, the Metro. That's where I saw my second ever show. It was Skink and Pickle and, uh, and Greenhouse. I don't know what either of those things are. Oh, you don't know what Skank and Pickle is? Well, that's a travesty. Everyone listening to this should go listen to Skank and Pickle. <laughs> I assume it's a ska band? Oh, I mean, obviously it's a ska band. <laughs> um, uh, they they apparently, when Margaret Cho had a brief, like, uh, I don't know if this is accurate or not. A Snopes search could verify this. But they've got a song called Margaret Cho, and apparently it was like some kind of intro that was possibly going to happen with a TV show or sitcom that she had been cast in. At least that's what all me and my friends thought when we listened to the song. The lyrics are Margaret Cho. Oh no, it's still going. It just... Okay. Craig has lost all of his audio before and I was freaked out that it happened. Um, But he lost it after they recorded an entire interview, which was sad. That's rough. Um, So yeah, the Metro. The Metro. The scariest uh, place I ever went was in like a in non-existent anymore uh, one of those like off-road shopping malls that's like I'm not off-road but like you know how the store the stores are they're, out, they're outside. outside yeah like, like a strip mall. strip mall yeah a strip mall that's the word I was looking for um, yeah like everything maybe this is just a theme of local shows in Chicago because everything was falling apart uh, somebody got shot outside while we were in the Whoa, show. That that's intense. <laughs> don't don't tell my mom. She doesn't know that. It's fine. Um, it was a long time ago. Anyway, um, so clearly we've got to get to like your student affairs oh, side of this I, at like, some point. Am I so like, too what slowly? is your job? So right now my job title is. Um, is director of special projects, which um, for folks that may not be aware, has become slightly more prominent as a job title in the last couple of years. My impression is it's a job title for when schools have um, interesting projects that they want to work on or strategic initiatives they want to advance, but they don't see it being somebody's full-time portfolio for the foreseeable future. So you Mm -hmm. hire somebody for between one in three years is usually the time frame I see with the job description um, to work on something. So MIT was hiring for one a few months ago that was to work on sort of assessment of like division-wide programming that was going to be one to three year assessment project. Um, And mine for this year was to work on a number of issues, um, partly helping to run our large events, which for us, um, our large family events, which for us are currently freshman family weekend and junior family weekend and then a period of time called winter session which is basically winter break official winter break programming as it were Um, and the other big thing was to work with uh, the school to advance this initiative with um, what are called unrecognized single gender social organizations which at harvard are four groups 
fraternities and sororities, which are probably the most familiar, and then a term that only exists at Harvard, um, final clubs, which are all male spaces, and female social organizations, which are sometimes called female final clubs, even though that term isn't accurate. So we've been doing, our um, current dean's been doing a lot of work around gender inclusivity for a number of years, and that's one of the big initiatives surrounding it, is these groups that came into existence in some cases several centuries ago when women couldn't own property or women couldn't vote, um, you know, are still in existence today in some cases. And so it was to try to really transform that culture and have asked groups to go gender inclusive and encourage them to go gender inclusive. So it's been a heady year. Yeah, and that's been like a uh, kind of in the news. Yeah, I've never right? that. Yeah, my first like week on the job, I couldn't tell my mom what I was doing, and I was like, "You'll see." And then she literally was like, "I think I heard about you in the New York Times," and I was like, "Nah, you heard about the work I'm doing, but that's not me." So yeah, it's kind of weird, and I'm always worried that campus reform. Actually, a reporter that I found out was from campus reform was trying to do some story and kept reaching out with weird questions, and I'm like, "Who are you? What are you doing?" That must have been an interesting job to accept knowing that you were going to be tackling something that has been in place for literally hundreds of years. Literally hundreds of years, yeah. It's kind of something that I really like about Cambridge, which is where we're both sitting, is that, you know, if you walk through Harvard Square, there's little plaques for buildings that were up in the 1630s. And I yeah, think that's so that's mind blowing because we're both from the Midwest. From like, Midwest, nothing yeah. is new. They'll be like, this building is ancient. It's from 1880. And yeah. you're like, what? Um, whereas, you know, I think to myself all the time, some of the spots in Cambridge have been around since the peace of Westphalia when modern Europe was basically created and like there were people going to school out here. So yeah, I, I was actually really excited to take the job because I've been working with folks that are in these groups for a number of years. I used to work. So the brief CV is that I went to college at Loyola, which people now know in the last couple of weeks because of the final four thing. Um, and I studied classics and that's history. That's why they know Loyola. That's why they know it. No, like I used to say, oh, I'm from Chicago, and the people out here would be like, oh, University of Chicago, and I got this big chip on my shoulder, not because I don't like the University of Chicago, but because I, I had a great time at Loyola, which is on the north side, and my faculty members were amazing, and it was just all around phenomenal. So now people know what Loyola is because of our basketball team, which is... It is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. So... Um, so I did classics, history, and philosophy, and then I went to start a PhD program in ancient history, did that for a number of years, moved back to Chicago after I started teaching as part of my doctoral program, decided to take a break, went back to Chicago for a few years, and then moved back to finish my doctorate. And it was two or three years being back here after I started doing the more traditional academic route. So I was adjuncting at Northeastern, which is another school here in Boston, and, um, and then I took a job working at... Um, Harvard's Sexual Assault Prevention Center, which is known as OSAPR, because that was work that I'd volunteered doing and found really rewarding for a number of years. And when a position opened up to do uh, outreach to our community around gender equity issues, I was super excited, took the job, and it was awesome. And I loved working at OSAPR. So in that role, I had a lot of contact with these groups that were either all male or all female and trying to do harm prevention strategies and work with them on questions of safety as well as gender equity in their spaces. So this what was kind of interesting is nobody outside of Harvard knows these knows about these groups. If you go to any other campus in the country other than Yale, people are like, that's meaningless. And I spent three years of my life really wanting to partner with our students that are in these groups to kind of um, reinforce and bring out their best sel selves and try to raise areas of concern. Um, 
And so I thought, oh, I'll never use that again. And I became an academic dean at Harvard for two years and then ended up taking this job. So life is strange because it got me to this point where I was working back with these groups, but in a different capacity. So, Yeah, there is, that is all over the place. Yeah, all over the place. Uh, I didn't know you went straight into a PhD program. Yeah, that was a bad idea. Yeah, if I could redo that decision. I mean, there, I would probably would have, wouldn't have done it, it, couldn't have done it any differently, but anybody thinking about doctoral programs, I would say, like, take a gap year. You need yeah. to rest your brain. That's intense. Yeah, it was a lot. And then the summer before I came to Harvard, I spent doing um, research over in Europe with a faculty member. So it was like, no break. Bad idea. And so what were you teaching at Northeastern? Uh, ancient Rome. Ancient Roman history. Okay, so I taught that for like, yeah, for like three semesters. Yeah. I was going to ask you earlier, but then I re- remembered that you were a history person. Because when I moved out here, I, I like... I didn't know anything, really, about history in general, I feel like. Because I moved out here and I was like, what do you mean this thing was built before 1776? It's like, bananas. In my brain, it's bananas. I was like, this place did, like, I thought, like, white people showed up in the 1700s. So I was like, where, where did all this stuff come from? It's so old. So my um, two, I've got I'm two, guessing you knew that before you got here. Not, not really, because I never really cared for American history. When I was an undergrad, I was super insufferable for a lot of reasons. And one of them was like, <laughs> ancient history is the greatest. All other forms of history are not as great. But I said it like way more snottily. And um, two things that I love about um, Boston and Cambridge specifically is the first thing is that European traders, particularly from England and France, had been coming to New England and Maine, for, for example, to cut trees to make masts for the British Navy. So hmm. basically, Europe was depopulated of the proper quality and height of trees you need to make the biggest like sailing masts for like the big warships. So they would send scouting parties into Maine to carve the king's sign on trees. Like they would have to find these trees, certain types of trees, like I think yellow ash might be one of them and certain height and certain number of years old, and they would mark those as the kings. And so they would come here. But the best part about it is all those years of doing that, way before 1776, like we're talking the 1600s, yeah. they were making contact with Native Americans. So when the I always thought or was taught in school this sort of notion that the pilgrims show up and the so-called pilgrims show up, and it's like terra incognita here in... in yeah. Know, no, literally, they were met. It's like the ugly American syndrome. They were met by Native Americans that already spoke English. Like, let that sink in. Like, you're That's like, this is wild. These are this is the savage North America, and you show up, and the first Native American you meet can speak your language and French, and their language. Yeah. So yeah, that's one. Wow, and, the way we're taught history is so messed up. Oh like, yeah. None of it is right. No, it's not, I mean, it's a lot of it, and this is what's so scary and why I think that studying history or educating oneself about history can actually be a real liberation project um, because we're taught these narratives that are, that are, that have purposes. They have nationalistic mm-hmm. purposes. So a good example is I used to teach high school students, like while I was a doctoral student over the summers, I would travel to Athens, Rome, Paris, and Florence with this um, study abroad company that was really phenomenal. And me and my friend, he was also a doctoral student at Princeton, um, 
would go around and like give the tours to our students. And we were in Italy and we were at, um, at Siena where the, uh, uh, famous cathedral to Catherine of Siena is. She's, she's the patron saint of, uh, the European Union. And we're giving this talk in front of the cathedral before we bring the students inside. And I start talking with them about what's called the medieval cult of saints, which is this idea that like these holy men and women are really powerful. The more your city has, or the more you have, the stronger you are. So it was like the relics of the saints were literally considered magical. Um, and we start talking about this, and this Italian woman that was just sitting on the piazza starts yelling at us in Italian and going, pa, pa, pasha, no, it is not right. And we were like, what are you talking about? And she starts yelling at us because she's like, you are making Italy sound backwards. We are the nation of the Renaissance. Without us, there's no modernity. And you're like, oh. And it turns out that she was a formal tour guide that used to, that would give these tours. And so the narrative that Italy wants to construct is birthplace of the Renaissance. Yeah. The Italian people are the greatest people. And you're like, right. But what actually happened was really much more interesting. There was a lot of interest happening and going on. So I think it's the same thing with the states, right? We talk about the so-called founding fathers. And there's no notion of the fact that the pilgrims got their understanding of democracy from hanging out in the Netherlands, actually, before they came here. Hmm. It's like, yeah, they didn't just come up with this stuff, you know, and the founding fathers got it from the classical world and so anyway, that's one yeah, thing. Yeah, other... I've been... Okay, so I don't know if you watch um, Adam Ruins Everything or yeah, his new series, yeah. The Reanimated History, and like every single episode, I'm just like, why do I know nothing? <laughs> um, and that was just like what that... Like you telling me that just reminded me of an episode of that. So Cambridge, so this is the other thing, I, and I only found this out two years ago, but... People think that, and people think that Harvard was founded by John Harvard. Like, no, mm -hmm. not true. Harvard was actually founded by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And, really? Yeah. And uh, what's really interesting is I I could have my facts slightly squishy because I wasn't expecting to talk about this today. <laughs> but it was like the first year the Commonwealth founded um, what is now known as Harvard University, um, or at the time it just would have been the college or whatever. Uh, it was specifically founded with something, I think it was 25 to 50% of the gross tax revenue from Massachusetts Colony for that year. So like, think about that. Think about any municipality in the United States today taking 25 to 50% of their revenues and going, we need this for a college. No one does that, right? And the, and the, the legislature's reason for doing it, or whatever it was called at the time, was... Um, was amazing, and it reads it reads so beautifully where it talks about what is the purpose of starting a colony and being successful if you have not prepared yourself for success by you know educating um, men in the arts of wisdom and governing and theology so that they can make sure that the venture is successful. So they're basically saying huh. you've got to, education is just as important or yeah. more important as food and shelter and everything else, because without that, we're just going to be eking out a living. And we don't want to eke out a living. We want to do something phenomenal. So I think that's, it's kind of that's depressing really cool. how far we've fallen away from Yeah, that, right? that's what I was thinking. I was like, that's really great. And, wow, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, and like it should, of course, anytime you're talking about anything, you got to like asterisk it and footnote it with oh, like, yeah, of course. yeah, women, no education for them. <laughs> no education for the Native Americans only insofar as we want to teach them the Bible and Oh, you know, God. so, <laughs> yeah, well, so those are my two fun facts. 
they Native Americans already spoke English when the Pilgrims landed, and uh, Massachusetts Harvard founded Harvard huh. with a lot of money, which I think is really cool. So, tell me more about this final club stuff. Oh, Lord. Um, I literally, I don't know anything yeah. about this, because it's like, I mean, it might even be good to start at, like, what's it like working at Harvard? Because everything there is so different from every yeah, other university I've ever it's, seen. It's actually really problematic, because I came into my jobs at Harvard through the back door of through being in an academic program and working with students, um through sexual assault prevention, which mm. felt really good because you're having a really positive impact on folks and a positive impact on the community. Um, and that led to my sort of student affairs jobs. But it's problematic in the sense that other than the other, some of the other IVs, the way Harvard does things does not make sense in a national context. So when mm -hmm. I'm applying for jobs or looking for jobs, you have to translate everything. Um, so that's... I like it, um, but again, it's the main system I know. I think some of the positives and minuses are it's it's decentralized. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's very decentralized. That's a positive and uh, minus. Yeah. Both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because think about it. Like, right? I think what happens in a lot of student affairs departments is it's hierarchical, and so if yeah. you have the following things in your job title, and you say everybody below me in the reporting chain needs to shift and start doing X. Everybody just shifts and starts doing X. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, Harvard especially has strong a strong tradition of faculty governance. Um, undergraduates live in these things called houses, which are actually very similar to the Harry Potter um, system uh, because <laughs> that is based in Oxford and Harvard was explicitly oh, yeah, modeled yeah, yeah. on Oxford. Okay. And in fact, our dining hall looks like, well, the freshman dining hall called Annenberg, if you go inside, looks kind of like a Harry Potter dining hall, and that's because, again, it was modeled on Oxford, and Harry Potter is modeled on Oxford. That's so bad. i got to go in there sometime. So, yeah, you should. <laughs> I'll, I'll um, take in, and you can look up, and it's, it's really beautiful. Part of it that's, that, again, I think is a strength and makes it tough to try to translate the system is that there's these 13 houses, so think about, like, essentially, like, Gryffindor, Slytherin, whatever, <laughs> where you have uh, several hundred students, usually about 400 undergraduates, and they're, um, the house is led by what's called a faculty dean, and those are full-time faculty members that take on that role, and it's really amazing because the houses do take on this um, unique character based on um, how their faculty deans and how their st house staff approach the house. Um, everybody, like what I've always heard and I found to be accurate is people really tend to like their houses, um, even though the houses are all different. So it's sort of like whichever one you end up in, which is now random, it used to be application based so much. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't it like a big deal when people like find yeah. out which one they're in? Yeah. It's one of the only times Harvard students really like kind of celebrate very publicly, which is yeah. the Harvard Yale game and then housing day, which happens, um, right before our spring break and they get these little letters delivered to them that say to freshman students wh which house they're going to enter because they enter their houses in the beginning of their sophomore year. So they get the letter basically, you know, two-thirds of the way through their first year. Hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of, like, excitement around it. And, and my favorite story that people can Google is actually Fox News was going to cover one of the big anti-war protests that happened when America was going to war with Iraq, um, which I guess I need to clarify the second time um, under George, <laughs> oh. George W. Bush. Um, 
And Fox News sent a camera crew to where all the students were celebrating their housing day assignments. And they have this breathless report, and you can see it on YouTube, that's like, Harvard students are marching out in mass to protest this war. They're very festive. They're, they're in costumes. They're carrying flags. They're beating drums. And you're like, yeah, no, that's housing day. So, so that's nice. Um, yeah, so it's very decentralized, which I think is a curse and a blessing. It, it makes mm-hmm. it a lot harder to achieve change. Um, uh, and it, you know, again, there's not one person that just says, make it so, and then that filters out. It's yeah. really... Um, many different people, many different personalities, all of which I think are are committed to students um, that bring creativity to the table. So I think one real positive of the system is its decentralization can lead to creativity and a certain sense of spirit. But yeah, it definitely is number one, the thing that is most unusual about Harvard compared to other schools. And Yale has something similar, but most mm-hmm. other, even of the Ivies, don't. So I would guess that like from the outside I would not think that somebody like you would work at Harvard. Yeah, like, that, yeah, that's not straight an edge assessment. punk tattooed does not wear suits to work every day. Yeah, I feel like I should maybe up my suit game. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's accurate. I mean, I think that um yeah. I would have thought the same thing. I mean, I thought for sure when I, people talk about imposter syndrome and a lot of different variations, but when I showed yeah. up for my doctoral program and for probably many, many, many years while I was at Harvard, I had constant imposter syndrome. Um, and it was really only when I was both chronologically older and also had a couple of years of um, experience working mm-hmm. really well with our students under my belt that I started to kind of settle into my own skin and just be like, you know what, I'm just going to be myself. And I think that that a lot of the people I worked with um, and continue to work with at Harvard saw and respected that because you can't fake if you really care about people and you really care about community and you want all the folks in a community to be their best selves, which is what I do want, um, and you really believe in the power of education, which I very much believe in, you can't fake that and people see it and respond to it. And I've always felt since I was a little kid that... um, Anybody that only responds to what the externals of people look like is extraordinarily shallow. Um, And that could be really pernicious if it's somebody looking at your skin color or your gender. But I also think, um, why should it matter um, whether people have visible tattoos or not, what their hair Mm -hmm. looks like, how they groom themselves or have facial hair or wear suits to work or don't. And in fact, there's actually studies backing this up when they examine college professors that... um, professors that dress idiosyncratically so usually understood as like t-shirt and sports blazer Mm. versus full suit beard also another thing um are rated as more competent by students than Mm. those that dress traditionally and um the social scientists that did the study that i'm referencing think that it has to do with the fact that people subconsciously like oh well they couldn't buck the Mm -hmm. trend unless they were really competent and good at what they do so Okay. Yeah, weird, right? I like so, that. So, I mean, I don't know. So, I just got to a point, I think, where I was where I was like, you know what? All you could do is be yourself and 
work hard in service of um, your colleagues in your community. And if people see that and respect it, great. And if they don't, then you need to find somewhere else to work. That's, and that's so, true. So I really enjoyed, really, really enjoyed working with our students and working with our colleagues. And I think that, you know, again, like I'm a kid from the Midwest. I don't, I didn't know anyone um, other than one priest I know that went to, uh, that went to Harvard Divinity School to do like postgraduate study, just like mm -hmm. for a semester or something. I didn't know anybody that went to Harvard and you get all these preconceptions about it. And like everything else, yeah. it's an institution. It's a well-resourced institution. It's a really good institution, but it's filled with people. And so you have um, a lot of things people don't realize, like a lot of first-generation students, um, are the financial aid package that Harvard has been able to offer for the last, I guess, more than 10 years now, um, basically lets anyone um, on a need-based schedule attend um, at no cost. So our student population doesn't look like what people think it looks like if they've never visited campus. And that's something that wasn't always the case. I feel like when I came to Harvard in 2003, the, the students who went to campus just looked different and, and were different because we didn't yet have that really robust financial mm. aid package. So I'm really proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that a lot of my students were first gen. Um, and you know, in, in various aspects, really, really diverse. I appreciated that. Hey everyone, Jacqueline here from In Between Spins. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Edgepunks podcast. I'm just dropping by to tell you a little bit more about In Between Spins. It probably comes as no surprise that I love collecting vinyl. It's been a hobby and a huge obsession of mine for over a decade. And over the years, I've had the pleasure of meeting and connecting with other femme and non-binary vinyl collectors through social media and record fairs. However, this space is still heavily dominated by men. And this is why I created In Between Spins. Every week, I'll share pieces of my record collection, books I'm reading, art I'm enjoying, and whatever else I'm doing in between spinning records. In addition to the In Between Spins YouTube channel dedicated to femme and non-binary vinyl collectors, the first quarterly zine is available now to purchase with all proceeds going to Trinity Place Shelter, a homeless shelter in New York City for LGBTQ youth. This first zine is centered on feminism and how we navigate relationships with male figures in our lives. If you'd like to get involved with the channel or zine, feel free to reach out to me on social media or email hello at inbetweenspins.com. Talk to you all soon and enjoy the rest of this episode. Yeah, that was definitely a surprise to me because I clearly walk through your area of campus uh, every day to get to work because we're neighbors basically um and that that was really surprising to me because I, I mean first gen from the midwest like yeah. i didn't know anyone that had even thought about going to harvard right right yeah um, so yeah that's that's such a wild thing um but anyway yes back to the final oh, yeah, back i'm i'm super interested because i know nothing about them other than they're like kind of secretive Oh yeah, they're. I mean, they're. They're. They are. Um, it's just. It's. It's. It's very strange to me because you know at Loyola there were fraternities, but like not many. It's not a Greek life school. Mm. Um, but you know there were fraternities, and Harvard in recent years has a couple of fraternities. But really, the that type of social scene, that gap in the social scene, is really filled by these final clubs. So um, 
they own property in essentially in Harvard Square, all of them. Um, they own these beautiful, beautiful houses, mm -hmm. uh, mansions actually. And uh, you know, what's really interesting is that most of them, I mean, I don't know the founding dates on all of them, but they've been around for a while. And uh, they, you know, um, like FDR was apparently considered it one of the biggest disappointments of his entire life that he didn't get into the same final club that his um, uncle, Teddy Roosevelt, um, got into and like you wow. know, decades later he was still crushed by the fact that he didn't get into the same one that um, he got that into was, one he got into he one get he didn't get into his preferred one. one yeah wow that's so nuts um, and so they're you know they're male um, I mean I guess this has changed in the last year or two but traditionally they were male only spaces um, where you would pay a certain amount of dues and then you have access to it over the centuries um the exact function they served on campus differed um, quite a bit, but I think in recent years, members of our community would probably mostly agree that the function most of the final clubs have at this point is is social. Um, that it is that is to say, they've got these beautiful spaces on campus, and their students on um, weekend evenings throw parties um, where they let in community members and um, other Harvard students. But again, the membership. In most, though not all, the final clubs is exclusively male hmm. at this point in time. So we'll see if that changes. And actually, groups of women um, starting in the 1990s, sort of in reaction to that system, started their own social organizations. Um, so it's, it's really telling because when you meet with the graduate board members of these various groups, um, you know, the men all look like. Fortune 500 CEOs, um, typically, right? They're, they're older, white hair, you know, they dress in suits and speak with that authority that comes with um, being taken seriously in whatever, whatever you're doing in life. And um, when I was first started doing the work I was with, um, with these groups, and you would go to a graduate board meeting where the female groups that have their graduate board members present, you sometimes couldn't tell which ones were the student leaders and which one were the grad board leaders because the oldest grad board leader mm -hmm. was probably like 30 um, at the time. So it's really an interesting gender dynamic, and I think that this is something that you get at Harvard that you don't get at schools in the Midwest because they're much newer. So mm -hmm. when they spring up, they spring up in a relatively modern context, whereas at a place like Harvard, a lot of the traditions have these deep, long historical roots. And if you're somebody that values tradition, um, that can be really neat. And it also can be something we've got to stop and think really hard, which traditions are healthy um, and interesting and which traditions it, you know, could be in use of an update. So that's one of your special projects, right? That's one of my special <laughs> projects is working on that. One of, that title is so just like, here, I want to give you random things to do. Like, I had no idea it's, what it meant when you told me. You know, I, I've percent. struggled a little bit seeing as as I've watched the title proliferate the last two years, because I'd never heard of that job title yeah. before. Um, and seeing seeing a, a number of those um, pop up as I've been, you know, keeping my eye on job postings, um, you know, it worries me because I've watched... Um, this happened in the academic side of higher ed with adjunctification, where mm -hmm. most schools are, are primarily served by adjuncts. And my colleagues that have gotten their academic PhDs and gone on the job market, most of my social 
circle got their PhDs at Harvard, and many of them, um, it's really challenging to find work. And the question is, how long do you let yourself be on the job market? Where mm -hmm. oftentimes what you're doing is adjunct work, which works out great for universities and tends to work out really poorly for the labor force. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think, devalues entire professions, right? Because suddenly it's like, yeah, we need people to do the labor, the intellectual labor of teaching our courses, but it's easier for us if we don't actually have those faculty members and we just hire people to teach intro to Western Civ or whatever and just pay them a set rate. And so I, I don't wonder if we're going to start, and I think that this job title in general, um, not necessarily in my position, but just as I watch it, sort of grow as colleges are trying to keep up with some of the changes that are happening in their student body. What are we going to do around that? Are we going to sort of see something similar to adjunctification happen in the student affairs side? I don't know. I hope not. Because well, one of the reasons I was trying <laughs> I was going to say, that's been kind of stressful for you too, because you kind of know when your job's done. Well, what's interesting is that I think that because you know, everyone knows what an adjunct instructor is mm -hmm. and how to manage that in relation to their, you know, professional development or when they are interviewing for tenure track jobs, how to mm -hmm. speak about it. We don't have the, I don't think we have the data on um, what this does for people's professional development. Is it a plus because you've done some really interesting work at a time when a university needed some really interesting work done? Or is it something that some schools are going to look at as, well, that's not a traditional track. So, <laughs> probably a little bit of both. Yeah, probably. Dep probably depends on what they're looking for. But yeah, that's you have a very non-traditional track into the field. Um, but yeah, so you've you've done a lot of work in regards to like gender and yeah. um, inclusivity, uh, and I know you're doing some policy changes, uh, which I assume in a school that is so rooted in tradition. It's probably been difficult. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for everyone, change is really hard. For everyone. It's a stress. It's a stressor, right? But, um, like, in higher ed, it's like the alumni that you're like, that's... I feel like that would be the biggest stressor. Because you're like, this is where the money's coming from. If we do something and they don't like it, they're going to cut it off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the good news is that more so than other places, I think Harvard is insulated from that a little bit. That's right? good. I think a lot of people think that, think erroneously that there's some kind of, you know, that Harvard must be more sensitive to that sort of thing. Yeah, um, I would think so. Which I don't think is accurate, but I think anywhere you go, right? So like, yeah. I don't know if you remember, I'm blanking the scholar's name. I think Stephen Salida, um, that was a scholar that essentially had a, a number of messages on his personal Twitter account calling out white supremacy and I think oh, standing yeah. in solidarity with Native Americans. And U of I had agreed to hire him and mm -hmm. had gotten vetted all the way and he was about to start his job there and then they pulled the job offer. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, my understanding was that because the chancellor had been pressed very hard by, by alums. So, yeah, and I know there were some colleges... I want to say Wellesley was one of them, but I don't remember if that's exactly what it, uh, what school it was. That were, um, it was like women's schools that were accepting trans women, mm -hmm. um, and like some alumni getting mad about that situation. Um, I mean, I don't want to sound facile, right? I don't want to. I don't want to underplay yeah. that. Thoughtful people can often disagree about thorny issues, but when I think yeah. back to 
the historically women women's colleges that were struggling with trans inclusivity those mm-hmm. first few years when it started becoming an issue in higher ed, you look back on it and it just seems so stupid, doesn't it? It just seems like it turns out when you trust people and you go, you know what? <laughs> yeah. You know best and we think this is in line with our mission and we don't know, but let's try it out and see. It turns out when you do that and you create a welcoming environment, it's fine. So it's it's so funny because I remember all the articles and the hand and the hand wringing and the mm-hmm. like and same thing with the International Olympic Committee and it's like nobody nobody like nobody cares it's fine like stop it it's fine and I think that that actually because I was working at our Office of Sexual Assault Prevention when a lot of that was happening when a, the historically women's colleges were trying to mm-hmm. examine like what do we do yeah um, that was not that long ago yeah it wasn't that long but isn't it funny how quickly like have any of us heard about it in the in the news? I mean, I think it's because hopefully people welcomed trans folks onto their campus, and I certainly hope those students felt welcomed and included. Mm-hmm. It's a non-issue if you just give people a space to be themselves and flourish and support them. What? There's not a downside, I think. So it's it's just funny in retrospect because you're like everybody was really freaking out and it was fine. Like maybe maybe we should take that as a lesson. Um, what do yeah. you mean, learn things? Who learns things? Because it's really, and I think when I've dealt with these issues in social change, it's really revealing. Like you think about, so I was just watching David Letterman's got that new show on Netflix. It's basically like his retirement David mm-hmm. Letterman show, uh, and uh, and. He has a uh, spoiler alert. He has Barack Obama on there one time, and um, he, uh, Barack Obama and uh, Representative John Lewis and David Letterman are just t- were talking about you know um, the civil rights marches and everything else. And you're like, there were and David Letterman, much to his credit, I think, was very upset with himself um, on air and said, you know, what I was doing when John Lewis was getting was getting beaten for um, crossing. The Edmund Pettus Bridge is I was going on spring break with my friends to uh, mm-hmm. to get drunk. Why wasn't I there? And I think it's the same thing in all these little micro changes that we might face on our own college, um, within our own college communities and campuses in a small way is at a certain point in time, people are going to look back on how we acted and they're going to they're gonna say, you know, well, were you digging in your heels when change came knocking or mm-hmm. were you just trying to be a decent person that supported people in achieving their goals. And I, I guess I've never understood the downside to supporting people in achieving their goals, provided those goals aren't immoral or illegal or something. Yeah, that's fair. Right? But it's like, everybody, <laughs> yeah. we, we worry about it so much. Why? Yeah, I don't know. No, We're on the same page here. <laughs> and I'm from the Midwest, right? Like, I mean, you know, because like, oh, we go home yeah. and talk with our family members, I'm sure, are, you know, and I'm love the way my parents raised me and I think the reason why I care about people is because they raised me to just be a decent person first and foremost but you know I'm not gonna lie when I go back and you start talking politics with family oh god I think it's awful yeah it's it is so stressful (laughs) there's got to be something I'm missing though right because I can't (laughs) like there's got to be another side where people that I think are missing the entire point might be onto something, but I don't see it. I don't see how you can be onto I something. I honestly have no idea. If you don't support protesters in Ferguson or protesters at Standing Rock, I'm like, what? What is your? What is the position you're taking? Just stop making noise. I mean, that's not really a moral position. It's not even that, because if it's you know like Colin Kaepernick, like 
That that was a whole to do. I don't I don't want to Yeah. Like they he wasn't even making noise. He was doing it real quietly and they were like still bad. <laughs> I don't know. It it's very different being outside of the Midwest cuz yeah. I think I in the town that I grew up in there was no You were just outside Milwaukee, right? I'm I'm like directly in between Milwaukee and Chicago. I moved around Kenosha? a lot, so it's kind of, yeah. But, like, western. My high school was called Wistosha, because it was west of Kenosha. <laughs> yeah, it's real flat and lots of uh, farmer's fields out there. Yeah, yeah, but there, like, there aren't very many different kinds of people, so there yeah. aren't very many different kinds of thoughts. Yeah. So, like, that, I think, has been the most interesting thing for me, has been, like, seeing how much I've learned and changed because I left, yeah, and then seeing other people who didn't leave, and kind of, and it, yeah, and like, how is that, like, how is my hometown supposed to get better if nobody ever leaves and then comes back? But like, am I planning on going back? Literally never. <laughs> so this is, I mean, this is an interesting problem because um, there's data now that looks at um, how. Americans look at their institutions of higher learning. And um, my understanding, and again, I don't have notes in front of me, so I hope mm -hmm. I'm not getting it horribly wrong, and people will approach my comments from a spirit of generosity, <laughs> is that uh, higher education used to be, used to be as an institution, um, trusted and seen as a value add to society. That mm -hmm. higher education would, was a net gain for society. And now it's the opposite. I think a statistical majority of Americans actually think higher ed is problematic. And I don't wonder if one component of that is a brain drain. Like, I don't know very many students. When I talk to, to my students about their post-graduation plans, very few of them are mm -hmm. like, I'm excited to go back to Oklahoma or um, yeah. the suburbs of Chicago or whatever. I mean, people really, young people, I think especially, flock to the cities. I mean, out here in Boston, I think it's New York more than anything, probably. 50% mm -hmm. of my students want to go to New York, specifically move to New York. Some mm -hmm. huge number, maybe 30% move to New York, and another huge number moves out to the West Coast, primarily San Francisco. You yeah, don't hear about a lot of people. Yeah, like staying in Boston, moving to New York, or going to California. Yeah. Like the big ones. And so I kind of don't wonder if that's the problem when you've got these folks that you're excited to send them off to college. I think it's a particularly trenchant problem with elite schools, for sure, because mm -hmm. you might be really excited to send them to a place like Harvard or Yale, and then when you do see them, they're coming back into town for a day or two, and they don't really have plans to come back and... and transform the communities they're from um but i also feel like yeah i mean i'm a case in point i don't i don't <laughs> yeah I, I think my family would love if i would be like and chicago's a huge i mean chicago's an amazing yeah. city such an amazing city but i'm like i can't do it because it's an island i just i even just like the the geographical location of the east coast where i can ride my bike to all these different cool cities or go visit friends in philadelphia mm -hmm. or new york or it's all to so Maine. close together it's also close that was so the much. weirdest thing about moving out here was when i was like i can drive this way an hour and i'll be in maine this way an hour and i'll be in connecticut or new hampshire or vermont and I know, like, it's, it's, it's 
it's and then it's like in Wisconsin, you're like, I could drive eight hours and still be in Wisconsin. No, that's what, that, I had the yeah. exact same experience, right? Like where we, I would do long distance bike rides with my friend um, in Chicago, and basically the furthest you can get in a day from Chicago, the furthest I ever got was into Wisconsin. Um, and you could probably go Indiana, right? Yeah, but then, yeah, you could, but, but then, then you're, you're in, in Indiana. Indiana. <laughs> but I mean, more that it's like, so we would always try to end up in cities, right? So then you yeah. get a hotel for yeah. the night and it's like, other than Indianapolis, which is pr- pretty close to Chicago. Yeah. It's, it's like you said, it's like eight hours in any direction and you're in the yeah. same geographical environment. It's the same. It's yeah. weird. And I moved out here my first weekend here. I went on a bike ride that took me to Rhode Island, Connecticut and Massachusetts all in one afternoon. And I was like, this is cool. So I kind of wonder if that's that's not a problem too, because if you get exposed to different kinds of people and interesting ideas at university, bringing that back to the places where that's not as common in an occurrence would probably bring a lot of um, an interesting mix to the table. I don't know. It is also like emotionally exhausting to go back. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. It's like, of course I want to make it better, and it's not going to happen with just me. So, like, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a whole issue. Systemic I, problems, you know? That's yeah. what we're getting to. Well, I do, I do think um, that you're right that one of the challenges, there's, there's... And I will say this. The Midwest doesn't really get as much credit as it should, especially the large cities. I mean, the mm. Twin Cities, when I visit the Twin oh, Cities, Minneapolis is amazing. I'm always shocked by, in a positive way by the amount of um, immigrants from Africa. I mean, they, obviously, mm-hmm. they have a historically huge Somali community. Somali, but, yeah. a lot of, but a lot of folks from um, other African communities as well, um, Asian communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that the misconceptions, just like there's misconceptions about Harvard, one of the misconceptions about the Midwest, especially, I think, to folks around the East Coast, is that it's all white, older oh, Americans. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it's definitely not that. But I think people are much more segregated. Oh, like, very Chicago, so. you could draw three lines on the map of this is where white folks live, this is where uh, African Americans live, and this is mm-hmm. where the Latinos live. In Chicago, yeah, it's like three I mean, real big communities. Literally, like... Milwaukee is the most segregated city in the country. And that, that's been, like, a really interesting thing to be somewhere that's not. Right. And not have those, like, very distinct lines. And um, I think that is, like, the biggest problem that, like, of course, there are people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, but... They're not interacting with Never. each other ever. Yeah, because yeah, I was saying this during the ill-fated election we just recently had where <laughs> yeah. I don't understand why stoking fear of uh, Muslim Americans seems to be so effective. You know what I mean? Like It's mm-hmm. just like you're like, what's the problem? And then realizing that me and most of my friends and other folks, it's, it's especially on the East Coast, and I... You know, I think it's different depending on where you are on the East Coast. But if you think about New York or Boston, you see all kinds of people. You buy your newspaper or your lotto tickets or your groceries or whatever from people. And you realize that, oh, they're just members of the community. Mm-hmm. Right? Whereas <laughs> I think less people. So. <laughs> and it sounds so, when you say it out loud, it sounds, it sounds stupid. so stupid. But yeah. it's so true that, that it's easy to stoke that fear and resentment and anger towards people if they're just an imaginary group. 
All right, it's time for the music break portion of the podcast. You have been hearing sounds and tunes from my buddy Scott Nicholas and his new project Krigola, aka Amish Rage. Amish Rage was his name when we were performing uh, together at Oregon State during college. We've collaborated on a bunch of stuff throughout the years, uh, mostly back in the day, but we've worked on art stuff together, we've worked on music together, and really just been a really great creative person to be around. One of the most interesting human beings I've ever known, one of the smartest, most insightful people, has just, just a fascinating brain for music and how the world works. And so I'm really Really thankful that he's letting me play tunes from his new album, Ooh You La La, which is a fascinating trip through Scott's mind, uh, through a bunch of different sounds, a lot of noises, how he uses his voice, how he uses a guitar, how he makes beats. It's all very much to me. It's very... It's very Scott. It's very much a dude that I haven't seen in a few years, miss almost every day, and am thankful that he just keeps making music because I feel when I listen to it, I'm still there with him in my living room or his living room just making noise together. And it just reminds me of the days when we were doing that a whole bunch back in college. So I am more than thankful to hype up his his new album, Uyulala, right now. If you like what you hear, go to AmishRage.Bandcamp.com and you can get a copy of this album. Uh, it's uh, up there uh, for for digital purpose. It's only, uh, only up uh, for digital, but you can check out everything that he's released. A bunch of songs that he's released are things that I have a lot of personal connection to, including the song that I'm about to play you called A Jellyfish Can Be So Beautiful. I remember when this song was just called Jellyfish and its earliest lo-fi release, and it's just so great to hear it fully fleshed out into what it is today because it's something that I'm just incredibly stoked to hear, and I hope you enjoy it too. Again, go to AmishRage.Bandcamp.com if you like what you hear. Uh, But now here is A Jellyfish Can Be So Beautiful by Krigola, a.k.a. Amish Rage. Everything you write was so wrong And everything you left was so right And all the heartthrobs are just heartbreakers Leaving heartache behind You don't have to be the same Change it all, yeah. You don't have to be the same, you could be the one. A 
jellyfish can be so beautiful When the cynicals wrap around you To drown you, yeah Cause every beauty in this world tears you apart If you let them get a hold of your heart Change it all, yeah. But you don't have to be the same. You could be the one. Again, that was A Jellyfish Can Be So Beautiful by Krikola, a.k.a. Amish Rage. If you like what you heard, please go to AmishRage.Bandcamp.com. Send Scott some shekels. Uh, send him some support. Get this album. Listen to all the other things he's done. Seriously, one of the most ridiculous minds for creativity that I've ever known. Thank you, Scott, for letting me share this. And yeah, let's get back to the conversation between Katie and Gilbert. Well, this has been all over the place. Yeah, we're all over the place. Um, but I think we've got we've got a lot. So let's do this flash round and then just learn some stuff about each other, yeah, I guess. Let's do it. Um what's your favorite book? Oh, you can't ask that question. If I really had to choose, I'm gonna go with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's multiple books, but okay, that's fine. Uh, how about movie? Talented Mr. Ripley. I've never seen that. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Starring Matt Damon and Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow, who I get less excited about for many reasons, including her <laughs> crappy personal blog. She's got some weird like lifestyle blog, and it's like so bizarre. It's never like, heard about that like, either. Do you ever feel like you're a bad mother? All you need to do is replace all the curtains in your home with these silk curtains that are $1,900. It's, like, super weird. <laughs> all right. Uh, but, yeah, so it's about, a, it's, about, it's about Matt Damon. Matt Damon won my respect when this movie came out. So, it's, first of all, it's gorgeous because it was set in, um, in just post-World War II Italy when jazz was taking off. Mm-hmm. When jazz... And, I remember the aesthetic of yeah, it, the aesthetic but I never saw it. Yeah, the aesthetic is gorgeous. And the whole premise is there's a character that's essentially a sociopath that mm. that ingratiates himself with people and then commits violence, usually out of some weird attachment disorder. It's really interesting. But the takeaway is that Matt Damon is in ev- Matt Damon is in every scene in the movie, and he manages to both be the creepiest person in a movie you've ever seen, but you also like empathize with him. So it's like amazing acting. Okay, yeah. and it's really pretty. All right, now I gotta watch it. Uh, where's your favorite place you've ever traveled to? Uh, hands down, Rome. Rome, Italy. You did, like, didn't even have to think oh, about I, that. I need to think for a second. I'm so excited, because um, I'm probably going there next summer with my girlfriend and her son. So her son's six, and he's super into Pompeii for some reason. 
and it's awesome because I've got a Pompeii tattoo and I've got Roman coins and I can literally find my way around the streets of Pompeii as if I'd lived there. Like I've been there probably like a dozen times. So yeah. How does this six-year-old know about Pompeii? Is this your doing? Uh, actually not. I wish oh, I could take credit. Fascinating. He, he's got like a book on natural disasters, like hurricanes and like yeah. whatever, like almost kids' books. And one of the pages is on volcanic eruptions, and it's got a picture of a bunch of people and togas running away from Pompeii. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I'm excited to go. Um, how about what's the farthest you've ever biked? 187 miles from Chicago to up through Wisconsin. So I forget which town I ended up in, but it was north of Madison like about 15 miles north of Madison. Is that like in, I thought you did like a cross country trip. No, I wish. Well, I've done, I, I mean, that's one day. Oh, okay, so yeah. you're talking, like. Yeah, and I'm trying to do go. a double century this summer on June like 23rd or 24th, like right around the solstice where I'll do 200 miles in one day. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I did a bike trip two winters ago. We started in LA and we ended up in Vegas. So we went through basically like the Mojave Desert and, the, mm -hmm. and a bunch of the deserts out there. And uh, then this last winter, we started in San you Francisco. Bike through and a desert? Yeah, well, it was supported. So it's like we didn't have to carry all our, all our own water. There were like follow trucks and stuff, but it was beautiful. I was mostly thinking like, I mean, I guess there's roads to bike on roads. They were mainly like... I was imagining you biking through sand. No, no, we, was like, we, that's, no that's what we were doing. That's we're, what you were doing. That sounds yeah. awful. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, some of the sand roads, it was like biking on kitty litter, and your wheels would just sink like oh, I've five, six inches I was thinking of like even out. running in sand while like playing yeah, volleyball it, is painful. There were days where it was like where you'd be doing a good pace, would be like six miles an hour. Oh my God. Yeah. So it was beautiful, and it was a lot of fun. And then we ended in Vegas, which was weird. I, yeah. All right. Um, you already gave me a, a story about going to a show uh, and seeing Pete Wentz a little bit, but what's your favorite like? What's your favorite concert story? Um, my favorite concert story is when I was living in Rome. I had an AFI patch on my backpack, and I got on a train, and it was like maybe ten thirty at night, and a couple of um, like Roman teenagers came up to me, and at first they thought. AFI stood for American Forces in Italy, which is the name of, like, the American forces that are stationed in Italy. Oh. So they're called AFI. And yeah. they're like, oh, you're military. And I was like, no. And they're like, oh. And I was like, I'm an emo. Yeah, I literally, no, I'm not an emo. I know I said, you're not an emo. I, said, I just thought that would sound funny. I said, I said yeah, it did not. It did not sound funny. <laughs> no. I said, there's a, there was, they're, they're a punk rock band in the United States. They said, oh, you like punk rock? And I said, yeah. And they said, come with us. And I, I was like, sure, sure, why Sure, of course, I should just go with the strange kids that approached me. So they took me on a series of interconnected tram lines to this place, and I'm, I only heard it once, so I forget. The, it's like Porte Pratestina, and it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. A bunch of, like, thousands of, like, punk rock Romans took over an old abandoned train station and they had set up like imagine like you know like on the T you go onto the T now imagine the subway station of the T is like abandoned you know there's little like alcoves that you could set up a shop in or whatever they ran generators through those shops and they had people selling records in them they had food stands all in the middle of nowhere on this abandoned train station that's so cool and they had bands playing it was awesome and there were there were also used needles all over the ground and one oh, of the that's, kids that's awesome. one of the kids was like 
yeah, don't worry, the Roman police never come here because it's, like, too dangerous. So, like, we can play whatever music we want. And there was a Brooklyn band was in town for that night only, and it was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. They were basically almost like a cross of, like, oh, they were like a psychobilly band, I guess. And I remember at one point in time, their lead singer took out, like, a five-gallon bucket and turned it upside down on the stage and then pulled out two baseball bats. And he played the drums on this bucket with two baseball bats for an entire song while his, like, stand-up bassist was playing the bass. It was, a bit, it was like, the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, and I tried doing it when I got home one time. I was like, <laughs> that looked really hard. And I, like, in my parents' garage had, like, two baseball bats and, like, a bucket. It, it, I could do it for, like, three seconds before my arms, like, curled up. So, yeah, that's the coolest concert that's experience. wild. It was so weird. Yeah, it was so awesome. All right. <laughs> I'm sure it's condos now, right? Pro yeah, probably. Yeah, I probably mean, condos. <laughs> wow, that's that's pretty cool though. Like the concept of that is really cool. Um, how about just like, what's your favorite live band? <sighs> Brothers Keeper. That's still around or not around? I have no idea. Well, I just chose Brothers Keeper. They were an old hardcore band, not to be confused with the Christian rock band of the same name. Huh. That's good. I'm glad you clarified because yeah. I well, would have looked them up. In case you're like, looking online, you're like, why? Yeah, all these songs. We're are... talking about. <laughs> um. Oh, how about favorite meal? Since you're a vegan and also like to cook. Oh man, totally like depends on my mood. Um, what is my favorite meal? I can't say. It totally depends. What do you it's like totally to good. cook though? Yeah, but like everything. Everything? <laughs> Everything. Pizza, Indian food, Thai food, baked goods, seitan. All right. Yeah. I like I like food. Food tastes good. I don't. I know. It's okay. Yeah. Everybody's got different likes in this life. I love how I feel like you and Brian have similar food aesthetics. Oh, like I... Similar food tastes. We do, and it's... It's terrible, because I'm just like, I eat like a 10-year-old. Well, see, but this is where it's all coming back at me, because um, my partner's son is six, and literally, like, at some point she's like, well, what should, like, she'll ask me, like, well, what should we do for dinner? And my answer is always something with color, because all he wants to eat is, like, no color. Like, it's, like, pasta, yeah. like, chicken fingers, like, I don't know, it's always, like, beige-colored. So I eat like a six-year-old, is what you're That's telling That's not what I'm saying. Or a six-year-old eats like you, which they could be eating up. They could be punching up in the world. Uh, I wish I liked food. I'd eat better if I did. Anyway. You do you. Uh, What's yeah. your favorite food? Pizza. Yeah, but with what on it? And where from? Uh, what style? Oh, man. I... I feel like as long as it's, this is, I feel like this is a controversial statement, but like, I don't really like thin crust pizza, so a lot of the like East Coast, especially New York style pizza is kind of like, it's fine. I like it. But it's not your jam. But it's not my favorite. Like, and not necessarily that like, Chicago style deep dish is my favorite, because that's like a casserole. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, and people like, are I saying it's it. like a lot. 
It's like it's one slice, lie. you're done. Yeah, yeah. We're like, I feel like I've had this conversation with my coworker Sai many times because he's also from Chicago. Rich Sai's from Chicago too. Yes, oh. from he's from Evanston. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so we've had this conversation about how, like, uh, in order to feed yourself, like, as a meal, you need to eat, like, an entire New York pizza or one, like, piece of Chicago deep dish, because it's, it's like a whole meal. But I do love it. Yeah. And then usually, we wrap up just on, like, your favorite band or your favorite album of all time. Oh, hmm. Yeah, I would say my favorite band... I've got to keep it real and keep going back to Brothers Keeper, which, like, stopped being a band in the early 2000s, if not the late 90s. But favorite album? That's really hard. I'm going to make a controversial statement. I really like Mike Ness's solo project, or Nick 13 from Tiger Army's solo project, called Nick 13. Okay. I could probably go with either... Mike Ness cheating on Solitaire or Nick 13's album. Neither of those are controversial to me because I don't know anything about either of those. Well, it's kind of like <laughs> one of those things, right, where they're like both of them. Like, so the Mike the Mike Ness album, Mike Ness from Social Distortion did yeah. two solo albums because he's super into like you know sort of like roots rock and roll, um, country music type stuff that were cover songs of. You know, music from the 40s to 60s, like classic sort mm -hmm. of rock and roll music. Um, and Nick 13 from Tiger Army did, it's a country music album, um, and it, but it's, it's before country music got overtly xenophobic, right? Like the country music from like the 40s and 50s, mm -hmm. it kind of has more in, I think, in touch with like gospel music almost. So mm, okay. he, he did songs in that style, and I say it's controversial because I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, well, why not then just pick an album of, like, 1940s country music? But I really like the, like, modern take mm. on that okay. type of stuff. There's lap guitar in both. So maybe you just really like steel lap guitar. guitar. Yeah, maybe I just love steel guitar. All right. All right. Well, thanks for coming to my office and doing this so last minute. Thanks for having me. Because two days ago, we had no idea we were doing this. Yay! So it's good that you were, like, just down the street. I like to... pop over. I like to say yes. I like to, like, I like to pretend that I do improvisation. So I could just say yes and. All right, we did it. Well, I didn't do much. Katie and Chris did all the work on this one, which I'm very thankful for. I'm thankful for their conversation. This was a really special episode, even though I wasn't terribly involved with it. I was really glad to get to hear a conversation between two of my favorite people and share music from one of my other favorite people in the world. This is like a really nice, heartwarming thing. I know for other people listening, it might not be that special or interesting, but to me, it feels really cool because we're coming up on a year of creating this podcast. Actually, next month marks a year of this podcast which is really cool and i think we're gonna have something special planned for it but um uh, i i just feel like we've got a to a cool cool spot with the podcast and um 
I I'm just really thankful for folks who've been listening. We just reached a thousand uh, subscribers the other day, which was really cool too. And last month we had a whole bunch of streams, which makes me super happy to see folks are listening to the podcast. If you like what you hear, tell your friends. Uh, share, rate, review, subscribe, tell your colleagues, um, uh, just, just, uh, keep spreading the word. That'd be really cool. Follow us on social media at edupunkspod. And if you like what you heard with the music this week, uh, go to amishrage.bandcamp.com and send Scott some, 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 some shekels and listen to his new album and all of his music because I think he's a fascinating, incredibly wonderful human being who's got a family to support now. He's got kids. Support him. One of my favorite people. I can't say that enough. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back next week with another conversation with another edupunk in the world. And until then, let's get to work. To my days, I just want it all to go away. Down, down to your lives without a salt in the sound. All your skeletons are being found out. Yeah. And you were never one to not misbehave. Can't you see that you've been digging your grave while you were slinging all your mud at my name? Just want it to go away, yeah.